Welcome to the teaching ministry of Temple Baptist Church. While we hope you can join us in person, our prayer is that this message will encourage you to love God and serve Him in a deeper way. Last week, we began this journey together. And, and we're asking the question, what do you do when God doesn't do what you think He should be doing? Like, what do you do when God is not doing what you and I think he ought to be doing? That question has pointed us to the book of Habakkuk. This tiny, tiny little book of the Bible. Habakkuk, a minor prophet. Not minor because its content is not important, but minor because of the size of the book. It's three small chapters, about two and a half pages in your Bible. And if you didn't know it was there, it would be so easy to just flip over it. And one of the things I like about Habakkuk is he's, he's, he's just like us. He's a man that is filled with questions and a man that is filled with doubts. He's often been referred to as the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. And who wouldn't doubt after what we just read last week? In fact, I'd like to read it again to you. Those first four verses of the, from the book of Habakkuk. Let me read it. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received, and I explained that last week, the burden that Habakkuk had to carry. He says, how long, how long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Like, how long is that going to go on? Or how long am I going to cry out to you? Hey, violence over there. But you do not save. Why do you make, why do you make me look at injustice? And, and God, why are you tolerating, tolerating um, wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and there is conflict and it all abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that the just is perverted. See, see what Habakkuk saw with his eyes, it, it didn't match what he believed in his heart about God. See, God, uh, Habakkuk's uh, expectation of God did not meet his experience. And honestly, I think we've all been there. Let me just give you a bird's eye view as to why Habakkuk was struggling so much. Let me just quickly draw this on the board for you. Take a little trip to the Middle East. We have here the Mediterranean Sea. We have Egypt over here. We have the Babylonian Empire. And right here, we have Assyria. And right in here, we have little old Judah. These are three main world powers, superpowers we would call them today. And Assyria is king of the hill, although their empire is beginning to decline. 
There's the Babylonian Empire uh, that is on the rise. And they're known as the people who are aggressive, cruel, violent, brutal. Nobody would ever connect the word good with the Babylonians. In fact, if fire fell from heaven onto the Babylonian people, nobody would be surprised. They're like, yeah, doesn't shock me. And then we have the Egyptian Empire. Again, um, a force, a mighty force. But they are slightly on the decline as well. And then we have little old Judah, who is being, whose king is Josiah. And I mentioned to you last week, Josiah really kind of broke the chain of his family because his granddad, Manasseh, reigned over Judah for 55 years. And the Bible says there was no one more wicked than him. He did more evil in the sight of God than any other king who's ever reigned. That was his granddaddy. And then his dad took over for a couple of years and his people rose up and they killed him. And now Josiah is put on the throne. He's eight years old. When he's 18 years old, they make a great discovery in the nation. They discovered God's word again. It had been lost. People had forgotten about it. Generations had come and generations had gone. And no one knew that there was, there was God's word. And after doing some house cleaning in the temple, they discover the book of the law. And they bring it to Josiah at 18 years of age. And he is overwhelmed. He, he rips his clothes. He, he, he just goes into worship, like, God's so good. And from that moment at 18 years of age, he decides that Judah is going to be reformed. And it's like a reformation has taken place in the country. It's like a revival has swept. People's hearts are turning back towards God. He's tearing down those beautiful, beautiful statues and and temples that were built for false God. I mean, things are going really, really well. And the Bible says that he reigned for 31 years. And Habakkuk is watching all this. It's amazing. But then one day, Egypt wants to pick a fight with Assyria. And so Egypt sends a messenger to Josiah. He says, listen, We have a bone to pick with Assyria, but we need to cut through your country so we can get there. And Josiah says, no. In fact, every time I read that story, I'm like, Josiah, why would you do that? That would be like Prince Edward Island saying to the United States, hey, with the United States, we need to put a couple boats on your island. And and PEI saying, no, and we're going to get ready to fight you. Like, it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. And, and I am sure, like, Josiah is a, is a godly man. As I said, I mean, he reinstituted the Passover. It had not been celebrated for 300 years. And the Bible says he's so overwhelmed by God that, that for, the, for the lay people of the country, he takes out of his own stock, he takes 30,000 um, sheep and goats and 3,000 cattle just as a Passover offering. This is a godly man. And he says no to Egypt. And the Bible says that Josiah put a disguise on, and became one of the regular soldiers. He put a soldier's uniform on, he straps on his sword, and he's in the trenches with the men. And Egypt comes and they go to battle. 
You've probably seen this in movies where there's like thousands of archers. You see all those arrows kind of going through the air. Well, Josiah gets hit with one of the arrows. And they drag him back to Jerusalem and he dies. And so Egypt just marches right through to Assyria. Josiah is dead. And so what happens is the people put on Josiah's son, Jehoahaz. And he's reigning for three months when Egypt now is coming back from battle. They're coming back and they take that son, capture him, and take him back to Egypt as a captive for the rest of his life. 23 years old, his son was put on the throne. Then the next son is put on the throne, Jehoiakim. And the Bible says that Jehoiakim did just like his granddaddy, Manasseh. Did everything that was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And for 11 years he reigned. And this is where Habakkuk is asking the question, God, where are you? God, do you see what just happened? The godly man has been killed. God, are, are you not going to do anything? Like, God, surely you're going to do, do something. I mean, are you not God? Are you not just? Are you just going to sit idle and watch all that takes place here? Habakkuk has hit, as I said last week, a wall in his faith. We call it a crisis of belief. And we talked about that we, we kind of made a diagram of the dip, the big dip. You remember that? Last week, we talked about this and our Christian faith and as far as maturity. And we said, this is kind of like Christian life. And we kind of explore, people are trying to figure out God, and then all of a sudden it all clicks, and you're living on the mountaintop. Things are so good. You're discovering who God is, and you're, the burden of sin has been lifted, and, and, and you feel like the past is no longer the predictor of your future. You've been set free, and you love living on the mountaintop. Who doesn't love living up on the mountain? It's an incredible view. But as we said last week, what happens? Life happens, and then all of a sudden, wow, Something happens in your life, you're like, huh, I wonder why God didn't answer that. But maybe it's just a little thing, so you kind of just blow it off. But then, then it begins to compound. It's little things, but all of a sudden, big things happen. And you're like, well, where's, where is God? And, and, and we ask the same questions that Habakkuk asked. God, I, you're God, so why, why am I going through this? What, what, what's the deal? And then things happen, and it seems like things are getting worse. And, and aren't we supposed to be experiencing this freedom in Christ? Yes, but how come, how come I feel so bound? And people make choices. Some people decide, I'm going to go back on the mountaintop, and they just pretend this stuff doesn't even happen. Then there's others who just go right back to living the way they've always lived. God, if that's the way you're going to act, I don't want to play in your sandbox. And they go back. Then there are those who will wait. And they wait. In chapter 1, we said that's the chapter about where Habakkuk is wondering, where are you, God? Chapter 2, he's waiting, waiting for God to do something. 
And what we said last week, if we, if we wait, and, and not that it will get better immediately, it may get worse, but there comes a point when all of a sudden your relationship with Christ becomes so much more intimate that you would never have experienced if you hadn't to go through what you had to deal with. It's called spiritual maturity. But we're just like a back, God, what are you doing? What's happening? I'm here, I'm praying, I'm, help, I'm asking for help. I don't seem to find you anywhere. Just like Habakkuk. You know, Habakkuk means to embrace and to wrestle. I never thought that you could embrace somebody and wrestle with them at the same time. I mean, when you think of embracing, don't you think of like intimacy? Love you. But when you think of wrestling, it's like, it's tough, it's rough, it's, and yet that's what Habakkuk does. He's embracing God, but he's wrestling with him at the same time. For crying out loud, he is a prophet of God. Why does he have questions? He should have answers to all these questions. He's a prophet. But Habakkuk has a perception that God is nowhere to be found. See, this is, this is Habakkuk's perspective. God, with my eyes, I am watching. With my ears, I am hearing. I'm using my senses, God. And with my senses, I can tell you're nowhere to be found. That is his perspective. Lord, I, I know reality. I know my reality. And you're not stepping in like I thought you should. I know what's happening. And see, that's where that gap, we talked about this before, our expectation of God, but our experience. And in that gap, so oftentimes it gets filled with depression and discouragement and frustration in that gap. Like what I thought you would do, but what actually is happening in my life. A few years ago, you, remember, you may remember this on the news, American warplanes were conducting a mission over southern Afghanistan. And as the planes were flying, intelligence had come to them to say that uh, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda were active in the region. And so the, the pilots were somewhat on edge, anticipating some anti-aircraft fire. And as they were flying, there was a large crowd down below them, waving their arms and firing their guns in the air. And the crew felt like they were being fired upon. And so with extreme accuracy, they let their ammunition fly. And it leveled the sight. 46 Afghans were killed. Not military, civilians. 117 were wounded. Story came out later that their perception was not their reality. Instead of it being the Taliban or Al-Qaeda terrorists, it was a civilian wedding party. Men, women, and children shooting off guns in, in celebration, which is common in that part of the world. A gap between perspective and reality was the gap between life and death. And this morning, we have our own perspectives. We have our own opinions, our own thoughts about God our own disappointments. And God says, you got questions? You bring them. I don't care how big your questions are or how tough those questions are, you just bring them. And, and when you read Habakkuk, you, you can just tell it is a book of questions. 
And Habakkuk has some tough questions, in your face questions, some of those tense questions, penetrating questions. He bombards God with questions. He floods God with questions. He does not hold back any punches. And his first question is, God, where are you? Like, where are you? By the way, it is okay to bring your questions to God. Nowhere in the book of Habakkuk does Habakkuk ever get reprimanded by God to say, hey, don't bring those questions. Not once does he say to Habakkuk, whoa, back up Habakkuk, you have crossed the line. No. Because he invites us to bring our questions and our tough questions and our hard questions. Now here's why I think the book of Habakkuk is an important book. On our road to maturity, a Christian maturity, we are all going to hit spots like this where we begin to wonder. We're going to hit spots where something happened, something goes on, something occurs with us or someone that we love, and we're going to go, what in the world are you doing, God? If you're such a loving and gracious and kind and compassionate and powerful God, why this? In fact, that's probably the, the biggest questions that are thrown into the face of people of faith. They'll say, well, if your God is so powerful and all-knowing and compassionate and kind and gracious, then explain to me a tsunami or explain to me devastating earthquakes or explain to me the atrocities that are done to mankind. These are hard questions and they are thrown at us. Why do these things occur? And it has been my experience that a great deal of those on the road to maturity will hit a moment where they just don't understand what God's doing. And I love the fact that Habakkuk is so honest with God. He's not playing games, by the way. He's confused. He's frustrated. And he brings all that before God. What a crazy idea that you can bring your doubts and fears to God. I mean, aren't we supposed to hide those things? Aren't we supposed to just be quiet and keep on singing? But Habakkuk comes to God and just simply says, I don't get you, God. I do not understand. I don't feel like you're listening to me. And if we're honest, can't we just say we've all been there? Or if not, eventually you will be. But let me tell you what happens when we are not honest with God and with one another. It, does, it creates problems. It creates the perfect storm. And let me tell you, you will not, never have a shot of maturity You'll never have that shot of worship. You'll never understand what it is to have sustaining grace through difficult times if we're not honest. So here's some things that happen when, when, we're, when we refuse to be honest with God and with those who are around us. Like We refuse to be honest like where we are, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what we're, where we're walking. If you refuse to be honest with God, things happen. I mean, when you feel like you've received a punch into the soul, when you have doubts, when you have frustrations, when you have fears, and you're not honest, 
Here's what happens. You just, you begin to pretend. You pretend, and it happens over and over in religious rooms, religious arenas. We pretend that everything is okay when we know it's not. And, and how are we ever going to know where we're going if we're not honest to where we are right now? So if you can't be honest where you are, then what happens? You just simply pretend that you are something that you're not. And let me tell you why that's so dangerous. Because then our faith, Christianity, just becomes routine. It's just, it's just routine, what we do. It's very easy to fall in to that routine of Christianity. See, I grew up in a traditional, conservative Baptist church. I loved, I love it. I loved my upbringing. But let me tell you, we all knew when it was time to stand. We all knew when it was time to sit. We all knew when it was time to be quiet. We all knew when it was time to say amen. We just knew, it's just routine. And it's so easy just to fall in that. Every now and then, somebody would slip into our church who would raise their hand. And we'd all, uh, they're in the wrong place. We don't do that here. The most we ever did is sometimes open our palms this way. You know, you can learn the language, you can learn how to do things and just go through the motions. And when that occurs, let me tell you, it becomes absolutely exhausting. Because no one knows who you really are. And it's at that point, you begin to lose confidence in God's love for you. You're not confident that people love you and are gracious to you. Because... If anyone shows you grace or mercy or love, it's easy to push them away because you think, well, if they really knew, though, if they really knew who I was, they would not do that. So what we do, we just continue to pretend. And we begin to get far from God. And we get lonely from others. And it just gets exhausting. I cannot tell you how many people I have met with over the years, 30 years of being a pastor, how many people I have met that pretend. Pretend with their secret sins that everything's okay. Right? Just pretending. They struggle maybe with, with secret fears, secret doubts, secret sins. And they get trapped in that. And, and they just think if, if people really knew what I was like, right, they don't think anybody else struggles with the same issue. They don't think anyone else has those same problems that they have. They don't think anyone else wrestles with anger. No one else really understands my problem with greed. No one understands my, my problem with lust or pornography or anger or frustration or hurt or fear. Like, nobody understands that. And we just, we just become a cocoon. And they begin to feel like they're all alone. Because what happens is the church has just become a very pretty, pretty place to go.
But I think there's even a bigger problem when we're not honest with God, when we're not honest with ourselves or with people around us. I think it's the most devastating. See, whatever you fear, whatever you doubt, whatever your addiction is, whatever your issue is, what happens is that all of your energy, all of your vitality is poured into subduing what you're struggling with. And you begin to forget about the cross. The object evidence, the objective evidence of God's love is, is the care for you on that cross of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, so many of us are issue-driven instead of cross-driven. So yes, it's true, we're going to fail. We're going to stumble along the way. We're going to have those moments that we fall short. There's going to be those times that maybe we even fall back into a bad pattern. But if you don't understand the cross and understand the mercy of God that's been given to us, then you are going to muster all of your own strength to overcome and beat that. And you take your eyes off the objective evidence of God's love for you. That Jesus died for you when you were at your worst, by the way. Because if your eyes are on that, everything changes. At my church that I grew up in, we used to do Sunday night services. I think we did it here years ago. And one of the things I liked about Sunday night, it was kind of a little more informal. And believe it or not, people just would shout out songs and, and they, the people would have to play them. I don't know how that would work here, Andy, and the band, if they just shout out songs. But Sunday nights was you could call for your favorite. Number 423, number 79, number, number 42, and we would sing them. And, and one of the songs that often was shouted out at our church was the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Some of you would even know that old hymn, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's how sin and fear and doubt, how you have power over that. It happens by marveling at the gift of mercy and grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what loosens the power of sin. When Jesus becomes more attractive than your sin, than your fear, than your doubt, in that moment when we see the cross and we understand it, that whatever this is, whatever I'm going through, it's not because God is being punitive that he's trying to punish me. See, that's oftentimes what we, we conclude. If something happens into our life, we immediately say, oh, well, it must be sin in their life. Something's going on. I mean, God doesn't allow that unless something bad's going on. Oh, I know why I'm going through this because I was supposed to witness to the person across the hall in the office and I didn't, right? Oh my goodness, I I was on the treadmill next to the person and I didn't share the gospel. Now I'm suffering this. 
That's how often so many times happens. Oh, I didn't give enough in the offering plate, therefore this is my dose of heartache and trouble. You begin to think, oh, God wanted me to give more money. If I had just given more money, I wouldn't be going through this. I want to let you know, whatever you're going through, I actually do not believe it's God being punitive. And I'll tell you why I believe this. Because all the wrath of God towards me was absorbed at the cross when Jesus hung on it. All of the wrath. So what I have is, and what we have is nothing but mercy on our lives. Which means that this road that we may find ourselves at, wherever it may lead, however it leads, has everything to do with God's glory and your joy. And that God, for some reason, has decided to allow what is in your life. Don't understand it. But for some reason, God allows these challenging times for his glory and for our joy which is beyond our human understanding. But here's my hope. My hope is that you will get tired of playing church. That you'll just get exhausted by playing church. And that all maybe the trash that we have picked up over the years, that we cannot be honest, that we have to be perfect, that you'll just get rid of that during this series. Because it's simply not true. God delights in giving his mercy to those who are so undeserving. Jesus, Jesus himself said, I didn't come for the healthy people. No, I came for the sick. They're the ones who need the doctor. I mean, Jesus is always calling those with shortcomings and hangups and addictions and problems. There is no fear, no doubt, no sin in your life that is more powerful than the cross of Jesus. None. So my hope is today that somewhere today or in this series, you'll be able to turn to your buddy and just be honest. Or you could be totally vulnerable in your small group that you could say, you know what, I'm re- I'll be honest with you, I'm really struggling right now. I, I'm doubting God. I, I see what's happened in my life, and, and, I, and I don't get it. I, I don't understand it. That would be my prayer, that you could be just honest with where you are as a follower of Jesus. I mean, that you could just say, I don't like what's happening. And let people around you help you go into deeper waters in your relationship. So may he use the book of Habakkuk to ruin us, to make us wholly dependent upon him in this journey that we find ourselves on. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Father, we are prone to trust in our own strength. 
we're prone to wander. We're prone to trust in our own might. God, help us to follow you, to serve you, and to trust you honestly and openly. God, we pray this in the beautiful, beautiful name of Jesus.